Petersfield's Shine Radio. You are listening to Talking Books with Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Hello, I'm Susie Wilde and you're listening to Talking Books. This month it's our Christmas special and My Old Chestnut is a Ghost Story by Daphne du Maurier. And I'm Tim O'Kelly of One Tree Books. This month I'm going to talk about some of the wonderful local books that have come out in the last few weeks. Oh, good ski. Our special Christmas guest, you see I'm plugging on with Christmas here, our special guest is Giles Brandreth. Now Santa gave him a lift to Petersfield on his sled and we had a lovely time, didn't we Tim? We did. Um, Giles is, is, is well known uh, and there's practically nothing he hasn't done. He's a, a sort of extraordinary polymath. He's been a TV presenter, he's a wordsmith, um, star of Just a Minute, writer of novels, biographies, poetry anthologies books of jokes for children, books of grammar. In fact, he could be represented in practically every shelf in my bookshop. Um, he's also well known as an, uh, for his funny jerseys. He was an MP. He has met practically everyone in the theatre world, from Laurence Olivier to Roger Moore, and uh, we're very, very lucky to have had a chance to catch up with him. Well, I expect listeners have also seen him on Celebrity Gogglebox, so even younger listeners, you'll know him from that in QI. And have I got news for you? Tim, I'm going to kick off with what we're reading at the moment. OK, well, I've been reading a uh, book by Sarah Moss called The Fell, um, which is set during lockdown, and at dusk on a November afternoon, a woman steps out of her house and heads up to The Fell in the, in the Peak District somewhere. And it's a story of four people that evening. Her teenage son, she's left behind in his room. Her elderly neighbour, who's watched, seen her out of the window. And one of the rescue team, yeah, it's a rescue story, trying to find her on, on, on the fell. Uh, plenty of suspense, um, plenty of interior monologues of these, these four characters. And it's a really, it's a suspenseful story, but, but beautifully written. So that's well, the... I couldn't get on with it. One of the things I really dislike is interior monologue. And there was too much of that at the beginning. But also, and I will flag this up for listeners, at the moment there is still quite a lot of doom and gloom, so I'm being remorselessly trying to stay cheery. Uh, Well, that's that's a fair fair summary. I mean, none of these four characters actually are ever in the same room with each other, pretty much, throughout the whole book, so they have to be telling their own story, I suppose. But anyway, moving on, the book that we spoke about last month... uh, Piranesi by Susanna Clarke. On your recommendation, I, I, I gave it a read and I thought it was an extraordinary book. It's, I would say w- uh, one of the descriptions of it in a, a review I read was gloriously peculiar. <laughs> and it is a, kind of like a, a grown-up Philip Pullman. Um, it's, it's entertaining. It's definitely odd. And you have to read beyond the first couple of chapters, which are quite off-puttingly otherworldly and strange, in order to get into the story and not just chuck it aside and say, I, this, is, this is nonsense, I don't want anything to do with this. But it is very rewarding, I think, once, once you get stuck into it. And, um, and it is, it's full of suspense, actually. You want, you want to keep on reading to find out what happens. Um, so I, I Well, I loved it from it. the first sentence, but I'm less averse to fantasy than you. Um, but, of course, it isn't entirely fantastical. No. And I've recommended it now to so many people. I think what it actually does is alter our perception of our world almost. Yeah. And I haven't so far had a dud. Everybody's well, loved it. I think it. that's what the best um, 
otherworldly writing does is it actually it actually looks at a, a you know an aspect of our world but from a different angle so you actually see it more clearly i think that, that's yeah good point so that was that's number two that i've also been reading uh, and it doesn't take that much read it's sentinel by lee child written with his brother andrew so i hadn't read one of his books for a while i thought it was about time i did um it's the usual setup uh which is you know, <laughs> Uh, Jack Reacher walks into town and immediately gets gets into trouble and um, and sorts out the bad guys. Uh, it's a good way to pass a train or a plane journey, and he's always enjoyable. Uh, it's, a, it's just a page turner, really. I I don't think it's much more than that. I don't think it's possibly up to the standards of his early no his early work, but it, I still I still enjoyed it. Um, and the last book I'm going to talk about is called Utterly Dark by Philip Reeve. It's, it's a, it's a middle grade. Middle grade. He's, it's written for kind of, I suppose, to for nine, eight, nine-year-olds up to young teens. It's, it's a sort of fantastical story set on, a, on, an, on an island, sort of, I suppose, west of the Scilly Islands somewhere, I think. It's where it's probably set, a sort of mythical island, I suppose. Um, but it's got aspects of, of uh, um, probably, I suppose you, you know, I call it a sort of bit of, sort of gothic sort of gothic feel to it gothic fantasy um but it is it's it's beautifully written he's a really he's a good writer um he did a a series of books called mortal engines back in oh, about, yes. probably about 10 years ago now uh and he is pretty well known in that world in that children's writer's world and mm-hmm. he's i would say it's a it's a really good example of of good middle grade writing oh i shall read it yeah so that's that's mine but what are you what have you been reading Susie? well tim as you know, I've been working on the big edit of book three, so that has really cut into my reading time. Um, but I did think it was time that I caught up with the quartet of Ali Smith and Where Better to Start Than Winter. And I was quite shocked to discover, I think it was published in 2017, which all seems like a long, long time ago now. It does, it does, yes. Which and... is odd. Um, and because it's topical, I, I did struggle a little bit with that. Um, I, I can see it's one of those books so I, I don't know if anybody at home is like me that sometimes you read a book by a writer and you can see the quality of the writing she is a superb writer and if I picked any page or, or almost any paragraph you just go wow that is brilliant but I found it difficult and again I'm not quite sure whether that's me or when I'm reading it um, but I just needed more of a story to hook me in the early in the early chapters. Yeah, and I, I find I haven't read any of that that um, those, that that quartet or tetralogy, whatever you want to call whatever it. Whatever it is. Yeah. Um, I've read some of her earlier books, and I totally agree with you. They're, they are fantastically uh, beautifully constructed. Um, she's she's great with words, basically. I would say that's what she does, but yeah. with stories less so. And I think she doesn't necessarily write a great story. And um, but How to Be Both or, or Hotel World both have amazing moments in them. Yes. Uh, but I'm not sure that she really managed to string it together for a whole book. I uh, Well, we're as one on that one. Um, so for light relief, um, a, a friend in the book club suggested The Thirteen Clocks by James 
Thurber, which was published in 1950. He loves it because his father gave it to him um, as one of the first sort of presents that he had. And it's almost like Le Petit Prince or, or the the Oscar Wilde thing. It's a, it's a sort of a... Sort of fable. A, like a fable, a, a, but a classic fairy tale of um, princes that have to come for the hand of the princess and prove themselves. But because it's James Thurber, you can see he's having huge fun himself writing it. In fact, he said he had to be taken away from him because he kept fiddling with it. Um, but it is wonderful with language in a really fun way. So it's nearly as good in its comedic way as Ali Smith in her descriptive way but with this one um it's as it's very slight obviously i want you to know that that was the new cafe there's not an elephant has suddenly come into one tree books um so, so would you recommend it to to him to read or i totally would recommend it for anybody a child who is old enough to not resent being given a fairy tale because it isn't but they might think they're being treated as though they're a baby they need to be old enough to just recognize that this is actually for grown-ups and that the language in it is such fun and i'm not going to say more because it would spoil it i think and then um this is the whole romance thing and i had my my critique back from an author called Catherine Bonetto. I don't know if anybody reads her. I must admit, as you know, I'm new to romance, so it's a new name to me. But she writes humorous love stories. Um, so that was good. They obviously recognised that's what I was going for this time, and that was brilliant. So I've been doing my research, and um, on Amazon I put in Christmas romance because I've discovered... Tim's doing that sneer face, I want you to know. I know it's radio, rolling but the lips eyes. curling, eyes, eyes are rolling. Um, but authors, this is what appeals to me as an author, they knock out two a year. What's not to like? So there's the summer Christmas, summer Christmas, summer Christmas from every author. So if you like the idea, go on Amazon and put in Christmas romance and, and then you can drill go down. What do, you, what do you want to do that? Well, Why don't you go into a bookshop and ask a, uh, an experienced person yeah, well, who knows what they're talking about about books and they'll give you, they'll, they'll put you in the right direction. So I will ask you to recommend a Christmas romance that is humorous and set on a Scottish island. Yeah, and you and you find one, did you? <laughs> yeah, I've read three. Three <laughs> Christmas romances set on a Scottish island. Yeah, I, had, I can't. And say... not classics. Okay, you need a more experienced bookseller. Obviously, I have never but come no. across a Christmas <laughs> let, romance set on a Scottish let island. Me, but, you know, let me rewind back to Amazon you know I don't ever recommend Amazon except for research so here you are you can have it all and should you not be shamefaced enough to come into one tree books and ask for a Christmas romance I urge you to do so but so here we are the Jenny Colgan's Muir series um there are two set on Muir at Christmas last Christmas and this Christmas and they're rather splendid in their way and also Karen Swan who I've mentioned before so she's got um the Christmas secret and midnight in the snow and honestly you could literally say I would like a Christmas romance where a vicar meets a parishioner in Cornwall and they go off to Rome on honeymoon and you'd probably find one. I rest my case. Tim, 
Let's go on to Giles Brandreth. Gosh, I enjoyed that, didn't you? So I need you to know that we actually interviewed Giles on Zoom. So it's slightly, um, you know, I sound like I'm bellowing and Tim sounds a bit distant, but I'm sure our producer, John, will sort that out a bit. But Giles was the most brilliant guest, wasn't he? He was. He was He was great. He did, uh, he's uh, not, one, not a man who's short of a word or two, uh, and it means he's very he's great to talk to because you can relax and just listen. <laughs> oh, raconteur par excellence. You see my French that I stuck in there. Giles Prandreth's biography is a great read in itself, Tim. There is little he hasn't done, and with no spoilers for the interview, here's something about his forebears, which he mentions in the interview. But he doesn't say who they are. They include George R. Sims, the highest paid journalist of his day, who wrote the ballad Christmas Day in the Workhouse. See what I did there. And Jeremiah Brandreth, the last man in England to be beheaded for treason. His great great grandfather, Benjamin Brandreth, promoted Brandreth's pills, a medicine that cured everything. So he said his forebears helped make him. So I think we should bear that in mind when we listen. Made by the people of Petersfield. This is Shine Radio. Giles, the first question I was going to ask is something I've really enjoyed reading um, Odd Boy Out, your autobiography. Um, one thing that stands out is that you've, you, feel, you say that you've always felt special in your family, being the youngest and, and a boy. Um, and do you think that's what, what's given you the self-confidence to, to do all the things you've done in life? Yes, in short. In fact, I, I'm the not the youngest. Um, I had three old... I had, I had a younger brother, but I had three older sisters. And I was born after the war. My parents were lovely people, uh, very lovely people. And my, my three sisters were born before the Second World War. And when I came along after the Second World War, my father was very keen to have a son. In fact, uh, had I been a girl, I was going to be called Mercedes, because a Mercedes is what he really wanted. But anyway, I came along, and I was this golden boy. And I felt like an only child, um, though I wasn't one, simply because my sisters were 10 years older than me. And, of course, I was brought up as this wonderful, uh, well, this this amazing creature. I'm amazed I, I wasn't found in the bulrushes or born in a manger. <laughs> I was just a very special individual. When I went to the Fulham Baths in London for the first time, I was surprised to find I could not walk on the water. It became a little shock to the system. And I think the advantage of being brought up by loving parents who dote on you, and indeed having three older sisters who were very loving and affectionate, um, was that you think you can do anything because you're told you can do anything. The downside uh, is that you have a sense of entitlement. The upside is that all my life I felt able to give anything a go because my parents thought I could do anything, so I've given everything and anything a go. I remember once I was lucky enough to be on the aeroplane Concorde in the old days, and they let you go into the, you know, you could go and meet the pilot. And we were coming into New York, and I said, oh, I've, I've never landed Concorde in New York. Do you think I might? <laughs> the co-pilot said, well, I don't see why not. Anyway, I sat where the co-pilot sat, and I landed. They let me link I was landing Concorde in New York. So the point is, I always have felt I could do anything. The downside is the sense of entitlement. And I remember in the 1980s, I was working at TVAM, a breakfast television station, and we had as a special guest the great Charlton Heston, who was a hugely famous actor, the world's most famous actor in the 1950s, highest paid actor in the world, played Moses in the Ten Commandments. Uh, anyway, he came, 
and he was on the sofa being interviewed. And I sat down next to him. I was one of the presenters, sat down next to him with my cup of coffee. And I put my cup of coffee down. And the moment I put it down, Charlton Heston picked up my cup of coffee and began to drink from it. He simply assumed that everything put within his remit was for him. And I've seen that in other film stars, a sense of entitlement that the world revolves around you. So that is the downside of being brought up like a golden egg. Um, you really feel that maybe you are a golden egg. As the years went by, I discovered that my sense of entitlement was misplaced. Well, it, then it, you marry. <laughs> I think that's what well, wives are for. <laughs> that is true. But in fact, it happened to me even before I married. But yes, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. You're such an optimistic person, such a positive person. And I think that, that really comes across in, in the book. So one of the other things in the book, is, which is really interesting, is that you, you're making connections all the time Different, different people, different, different things that have happened in your life. That's obviously very important to you as well. Yes, and I was very lucky in my life in that I've met lots of interesting people by chance and some I met by design. Um, yes, I am optimistic and I do see the glass half full. doesn't mean to say I'm totally naive. I do realise if it's half full, it means it must also be half empty. So I'm not a complete fool. But I do like to look at the world in an optimistic way because why not? It's a better way to view it. Better to be, I think, happy than unhappy if you have a, a choice. I, I have been lucky in that a lot of interesting people have come my way entirely by chance. When I was a, a little boy, my parents lived in London and I used to sing in various church choirs. And I was a server at a church in Gloucester Road in London called St. Stephen's. And there I read the uh, one Christmas, I read one of the lessons in the carol as a little chorister, little boy, age seven or eight, I read one of the lessons and uh, it went rather well. And afterwards, an old gentleman came up to congratulate me. And as I was shaking his hand, the priest in charge said, do you realize who this is, Giles? I said, no, looking up at this old, tall gentleman wearing spectacles. And the priest said, this is the famous poet, T.S. Eliot. No. So as a little boy, I met T.S. Eliot and he sort of took an interest in me and he told me about his poems. Not, of course, you know, his great classic poems, but his Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats poems, the poems that eventually became the musical cats. And I, for T.S. Eliot, learnt McCavity. McCavity is a mystery cat. He's called the hidden paw, for he's the master criminal who can defy the law. Anyway, I learnt this age six or seven for T.S. Eliot. So that was a matter of chance. And then later on, I had lots of, I mean, extraordinary encounters. My next school, by chance, my Latin teacher, can't have taught Latin very well, for years I thought in loco parentis meant my dad's an engine driver. Anyway, his, his best friend from the army was the actor Roger Moore. Yeah, Sir Roger Moore, 007, who I met as a little boy. He was already famous, he was appearing in The Saint, but he and Major Douch, my Latin teacher, had been in the army together. So as a little boy, I became friends with this man who became James Bond, this film star. At my next school, of course, in Petersfield, this is why I care about Petersfield and Shine Radio, is, uh, was, was Beedales, uh, just outside Petersfield, up in the village of Steep. And there I got to know the founder of the school. The school was founded in 1893, and the founder was a man called John Badley, who lived to a great old age. Born 1865, died 1967, aged 102. Anyway, I knew him when he was in his late 90s. He had been a friend of, 
Oscar Wilde, the great playwright, Oscar Fingal O'Flaherty, Wills Wilde, the man who wrote The Importance of Being Earnest, had known this man, Mr. Badley. And so I, at school, knew a man who knew Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde's eldest son actually went to this school, Beedells. So throughout my life, I've had these interesting encounters, uh, either directly or at one remove with remarkable people. And that's been very exciting. But I've also gone out of my way to seek out interesting people, both because I think as a boy, I was excited by the glamour of fame, and also because I'm interested in achievers of different kinds in, in, every, in every field, even in fields in which I'm not terribly interested, like, like sport. So I can't tell you much about sport at all, but I can tell you that I had dinner with Sir Stanley Matthews, people of an older generation listening will know who he is, um, on his 70th birthday. And I have met George Best and David Beckham. So I've met the famous ones <laughs> because they're the achievers and that's what excites me. I can't pretend I know much about football. Yeah, I love your, your description of meeting uh, Laurence Olivier at, uh, at Chichester um, mm. and waiting outside the door and eventually thinking, well, I'll just go in and try and find him and then finding him, which is extraordinary that you, and then teaching you, well, showing you how to, how to leave the stage properly. Yes, that was a, an amazing encounter um, because, of course, this was the 1960s and the Chichester Festival Theatre, not far from where you all are, was being built then, and its first artistic director was Sir Laurence Olivier, then the most famous actor in the world. And I went with the school and also as an individual to see all the plays they put on there. And one day, it was after a matinee of Othello, I decided today's the day I'm going to collect Laurence Olivier's autograph. And I went backstage, well, I waited at the stage door, but he didn't emerge. All the other actors emerged, you know, Maggie Smith, Frank Finley, Derek Jacobi, out they came. And then I realized that the stage doorkeeper wasn't at his post. So I managed to sneak in. And as I was walking around, you know the theater, you'll know it's built in the round, semicircular backstage. Coming towards me was this not very tall figure wearing a fawn-colored raincoat. It was Laurence Olivier. He took my autograph book, signed it, could see I was a schoolboy. He said, where are you at school? And I said, I'm at Beedales, sir. He said, oh, Beedales. My first wife went to Beedales. And indeed, Laurence Olivier's first wife, the actress Jill Esmond, had been a pupil at Beedells. So I thought, oh, I'm in here, I'm in here. And maybe because of that, he said, you want to be an actor? And I said, I do want to be an actor. And he said, would you like to see the stage? And so he took me onto the stage of the Judicial Festival Theatre, and we stood there side by side. And the first thing he said to me is, when you come onto the stage the first time, you've got to make sure the audience can see your eyes. And he demonstrated how to do that. And then he said, in, you're in the school play, I take it. I said, yes, I'm in the school play. He said, how'd you come on? I said, well, I just come on. He said, you can't just come on. You want to be noticed, don't you? I said, oh, I do want to be noticed, sir. So he said, oh, well, if you want to be noticed, I suggest you come on backwards. <laughs> they always notice the fellow comes on backwards. And he demonstrated this. And he said, as you're coming on backwards, wave to someone in the wings. You see, and the movement of your arm will attract their attention. They'll begin to look towards you. And then you'll be noticed. I said, that's marvelous. And I said, if you, if you were in the school play, I said, where would you come on from? He said, oh, he said, I'm Laurence Olivier. I can come on anywhere. <laughs> Is it true that he had his own spot? There was a sort of piece on stage that no other actor was allowed to stand in. Now, it's better than that. I mean, that may well have occurred, but he usually was the manager of his own theatres and ran the company. 
But essentially, he would have the stage lights put up by about 10% whenever he came onto the stage. So that, the, you know, the world was a brighter place when you were looking at him. And then it went down 10 or 5% when he left the stage. He was extraordinary. He had an animal energy and an extraordinary quality. It was a great privilege to, to see him in action. And I'm now very lucky in that I now know his lovely wife, uh, Joan Plowright who is, I think, now 92, a remarkable lady. Um, and uh, I saw her when she was young in all the plays there, like like her St. Joan, which is really fantastic. Wonderful. And Portia in The Merchant of Venice. Wonderful. And so the book, since you're kind enough to talk about it, it's for people of my generation, it's a trip down memory lane. It takes you back to what life was like in the 50s and 60s and 70s. But for younger people, people of my children's and grandchildren's generation, it's a, it's really, it's history. It's so, that, so I hope it works for everybody. And the reason I, I wrote it, I didn't really want to write it. I wrote it because of lockdown. I had to do something because we were all locked down. Um, and the reason I wrote it was um, I, my wife said, if you're going to do it, try and get beyond the obvious, you know, beyond the woolly jumpers and the teddy bears. Try and work out who you are and why you are who you are. And that's why I think it might be of interest to your listeners because we think... I mean, you think, who's made you? Is it your parents? Is it your siblings? Is it your forebears? Is it teachers? Is it people who've been at work with? Is it the person you're married to? What has made you the person you now are? And at the end of this journey of writing this book, I think I worked out who it was who made me. But I would counsel people, if you're listening to Shine, uh, and you're thinking, I might write a family memoir. I've been meaning to do it for years think carefully it's not necessarily a totally comfortable experience it can be it's it's a journey you don't quite know what the destination will be and in my case it was an interesting journey but at times distressing and I did work out who I I think I'm made by my forebears I'm definitely made by my parents I'm not made by my siblings at all I don't think I'm made by some of my teachers Um, but I don't think I've been made by anything since I left university. I'm formed by my childhood and my years at school and university, particularly by a headmaster who said to me when at my prep school, the one where I met Roger Moore, 007, who, anyway, um, who said to me, he was 82, the headmaster, who gave you a word of advice when you arrived at the school, so I was sort of nine or ten. He said, Brandreth, uh, busy people are happy people. Remember that. Busy people, happy people. Remember that, and I always have. And I think that probably explains why I'm so busy. And it's like the Jesuits. Give me a child till he's seven. I was just going to say, there's, you, you quote Noel Coward in, in the book as well, saying work is more fun than fun. And I thought that was a was a was a a good line. Someone who's as busy as you, it, it clearly you take that to heart. Well, my wife would say um, that the, the the downside of that, if you are a workaholic, I think it's a rather vulgar phrase. I like to work. Why not? Um, and, and I'm very lucky because most of my work would be a hobby to anybody else. I don't do anything. You know, I'm, I'm not you know, driving a heavy goods vehicle or tilling the soil or, or doing anything. You know, I'm not actually doing any work at all. I'm just pottering about and being paid for it. It's outrageous. Um, but I am busy all the time. And she would say two things. She'd say, busy fool, first of all, she'd say. And also she would say, you're one of these people who thinks you're defined by your work. And I probably am. But given that my work is very varied, I mean, my wife says, you know, you're just doing what you always did at school. You edited the school magazine, which I did at school. 
uh, in the school and the university magazine. And then you went on, you know, worked on newspapers. You were acting in the school plays, and then you went on and acted on the professional stage. You were in the debating society. Oh, the first public speak speech I made was in Petersfield to the Petersfield Rotary Club about 60 or more years ago on road safety. And I did win the first prize, five shillings. And I think a cup, a trophy in Petersfield. Thank you, Petersfield Rotary Club. But I am still going out, making speeches, earning my living. Nothing really has changed. I'm debating society, then became an MP. So my wife would say, it's not been much development, Giles. But <laughs> to be honest, I've, I've been very happy. Uh, well, it, it's clearly, it's, it's, it's just your uh, honesty and, and self-awareness comes across very clearly in, in the book, I think. Um, so I was going to ask a question about, you've been, a, you've been a politician, a novelist, a biographer, an actor, presenter, speaker, and many other things besides. Um, what is it you're most proud of in your, in your varied and extensive um, well, job life? I've already mentioned landing Concord in New York. Uh, <laughs> and recently, very successfully milked a cow. <laughs> um, I've been unsuccessfully milking laughs for, you know, 50 years. But I hadn't really successfully milked a cow before. I remember when I was a child, uh, I was sent by my parents to Switzerland when I was very small, aged on my own, aged about seven, I went to Switzerland for a holiday. And it all went wrong because I was at the French Lycée in London, so I could speak French. But I, they sent me to the German-speaking part of Switzerland. I couldn't speak. <laughs> so it was a bit of a challenge, but I did try and milk a cow. They're not very successful. The cow kicked over the bucket. Uh, I found it all rather, you know, teats rather uncomfortable and my hands were small hands anyway uh, last year uh, was it earlier this year anyway recently i was making a documentary about thomas hardy and they had a field in which there were cows and they were clearly ready for milking so i said anybody got a bucket and a stool and anyway it turns out i'm a dab hand at being a milkmaid i can milk a cow yeah. Fantastic. One of the things that comes across in your book is the love of musicals. And in particular, a particular old favourite of mine, which is Salad Days, ah. um, which I Ooh. absolutely love. And like you, I had the had the LP. My parents had it when I was little and I used to listen to it uh, endlessly. Uh, it's now rather scratched and, and worn out and I haven't listened to it for ages, but it, it's a particular favourite. Well, now I'm scratched and worn out, uh, but it is a particular favourite, not just of you and me, but of the Queen. I let you know, yet I've written a biography recently of Prince Philip, called yes. Philip's Last Portrait, uh, and I happen to know that the Queen's favourite musical was, is Salad Days, written by Julian Slade and Dorothy Reynolds in the early 1950s. It was the longest running musical in the West End until I think My Fair Lady came along, then Oliver, and then Andrew Lloyd Webber. Lovely show. And this is a good example, actually. I loved it as a child. A good example of me, as it were, making my grown-up life my part of my childhood. I, as a result of that, when I wanted to write a show about A.A. Milne, I became fascinated by A.A. Milne, the creator of the Winnie the Pooh stories and Christopher Robin. And I wrote, I wanted to write a play about about this unusual and interesting man. He'd been a playwright. He wrote detective stories. He was a political figure, too, and a great journalist. But, of course, he's most famous as one of the most successful children's authors ever. And I wanted to write a play about him and his relationship with Christopher Robin. So I wrote this show and I needed someone to write the music. And I thought, well, what's the show I've liked most? I thought, oh, well, it's Saturdays. So I got hold of Julian Slade, the man who wrote Saturdays, found him. 
and we wrote the musical together. And Alan Jones played Christopher Robin when Alan Jones was a you know a boy treble. Um, and as a result of this, I met Christopher Robin, the real Christopher Robin. I became a friend of Christopher Robin. So that was a sort of chance encounter. And he was a most delightful person. He was a bookseller himself and wasn't always comfortable with having been the real Christopher Robin. One stage he said he felt his father had built his reputation by building, by standing on a small boy's shoulders. But in the end of his life, I think he was reconciled to uh, being the real Chris Robin. But the point is, I say to people when they kindly buy my book and get it signed, I say, well, do be sure to shake my hand because uh, you'll be shaking the hand that shook the hand that held the paw of Winnie the Pooh. And there are not many other authors that can do that, can say that, can offer that to you. That so, is brilliant. One of the reasons I really want to speak to you is that I know that you had a, a wonderful relationship with Prince Philip, um, hence writing the biography and so on. What's one of your favourite um, incidents with Prince Philip that you would be prepared to share with the people of Petersfield? Well, um, I hope the people of Petersfield will, if they're interested in the life of Prince Philip, and it was an extraordinary life. He was a remarkable person. And, of course, if we regard the Queen's reign as a success, and I think most people do, the joint author of that success was Prince Philip. Uh, and he supported her absolutely for 70 years and more. But his own story is fascinating. His own family is fascinating. Uh, his grandfather was assassinated. His parents were driven into exile when he was a baby. His parents split up before the age, before he was 10 years of age. His mother was in an asylum. She had a breakdown. His father floated down to the south of France. We ended up living with a girlfriend on a yacht. Prince Philip never complained about any of this. He just took it in his stride. And his view was, these things happen, just get on with life. He didn't believe in looking down and in. He believed in looking up and out. He said, never talk about yourself. Um, and when he died, I appeared a lot on television because I'd written this biography of him. And sometimes I was described as a friend of Prince Philip. And I always felt that embarrassed by that because it was an impertinence. And also, I was reminded of something that James Callaghan, former prime minister, once said to me when I said to him, oh, you're now prime minister, Mr. Callaghan, you must be friends with the Queen. He said, no, 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 no. He said, senior royalty, they give you, they show you friendliness, not friendship. Always remember the difference. And I always did. But Prince Philip showed me many acts of, of friendliness. I mean, for example, when I told him I wanted to be an MP, he laughed. Um, but then he laughed considerably. And he said, what do you know about it? Do you, do you, I said, I don't really know anything. He said, well, of course, but that doesn't, that's part of the cause. And he said, have you ever been to Westminster? And I said, well, no, I don't think I have. He said, I can't believe it. He said, you want to be a member of parliament? Never even been inside the palace of where? I said, no. Well, within 48 hours, I had from him and indeed the queen an invitation to be their guest at the state opening of parliament. So I went as a guest of the queen and Prince Philip. First time I went to Westminster, was with the Queen and Prince Philip uh, and sat there. And there they were on the thrones, of course. I, my wife and I were little sort of spindly-legged golden chairs at the side. But nonetheless, extraordinary. So um, he, he, he was a remarkable individual. I got to know him because I was, and this again is my childhood coming into my adult life, by chance in this case. When I was a child, my mother kept a calendar on top of the fridge in which she noted, you know, hair appointments, gymnastics, night for scouts, all that sort of stuff, family details. And it was a calendar that she bought every year from the National Playing Fields Association. Uh, 
which was the first national charity that Prince Philip became president of in 1947 when he married the Queen. And there were pictures of the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip, who was an extremely good-looking young man, in this calendar. Every month there was a different picture of him playing cricket, playing polo, on a boat with Uffa Fox. Anyway, lots of pictures of Prince Philip. And I was brought up with this calendar. And then a few years later, I ended up at the charity by chance and found that Prince Philip was still the very active president. And I ended up as the chairman of the charity. So that's how I got to know him. And that's how I realized he was a very different individual from the caricature that was sometimes presented of him. But he made me laugh. He, uh, my favorite line of his was the one where he just said, if you ever you want to, if ever you see, this is a funny line. He said, if ever you see a man opening the car door for his wife, it's either a new car or a new wife. Very good. I mean, he wasn't always politically correct, but then he liked to read political history and military history. And he'd read several biographies of the Emperor Napoleon. And he showed me in one of these, Napoleon had said, if you want to understand a man, you should remember what the world was like in the year that man turned 21. And Prince Philip turned 21 in 1942. And he represented absolutely the values, the attitudes, the sense of humor uh, of people of that generation, that in many ways the best generation. He was heroic in the war, mentioned in dispatches, great man. But that's who he was. He was a man from 1942. And when people read this book, one of the things I hope, one of the reasons I hope people read Odd Boy Out is, yes, it's about me and it's stories and funny stories. I have lots of funny stories, a few sad ones too, but lots of funny ones. It's really for you to think, actually, who made me? Who made me the person I am? And what was I like? What was the world like in the year I turned 21? So it's in a sense, though it's my autobiography, I'm hoping it triggers in people a sense of what is their autobiography. It's fascinating, Charles. When when were you 21? What year oh, were you? I don't know. Uh, when was I 21, you ask? I can tell you. 1969. Oh, that's very, very good. Because I'm... No, it's... I know, I'm not far everything, off you. Every, everything happened to me. Everything happened to me 50, a lot, 50 or more years ago. But I, I don't mind that. When I was a child, one of the voices I first enjoyed hearing on the radio was the voice of June Whitfield. And I can date this to 1953 because that was the year she began appearing on a radio program called Take It From Here, playing the part of a character, F, in the sketch <laughs> about the glums. Oh, Ron, beloved. Yes, F. Anyway, I got to know June Whitfield. I, I loved her as a child. I loved the warmth of her voice. When I was a little boy, I was 1953, I was five, four or five. But the first radio show that I hosted was 50 years ago, uh, a show for BBC Radio 4 called A Rhyme in Time. And I turned up on the first recording and who should be on the panel but June Whitfield. And then we became friends. Uh, and so much of my childhood, as it were, either by chance or design, has come into my life. And so here we are. Look, that I was going to school in Petersfield and I didn't seem to be able to escape from the place. Here I am. With this lovely shine. Why are you called Shine Radio, by the way? Who knows? I mean, I think I think the people of Petersfield were asked for a good name for their community radio, and I think it was selected as a as a well, good name. Good. We like the sound of Shine Radio. We don't want anyone to take the gloss of Shine Radio. The gloss, and you epitomise it, Giles. We ask all our guests uh, what book they would take to a desert island with them. So, have you got a, a thought on that? Yes. Um, Odd Boy Out by Giles Brandreth. 
<laughs> Shameless self-publicity. No, no, because I've already found three little mistakes in it. And um, I'm a great stickler for accurate, only tiny ones. And I want before the uh, paperback comes out to correct them. But to give you a serious answer, um, well, obviously, on the desert island, you get the works of Shakespeare. And I'm a great Shakespeare fan. Um, and I've appeared in a number of plays of Shakespeare. Uh, and I love it. Uh, so I would have Shakespeare. I, when I did do Desert Island Discs, I chose as my book the plays of Anton Chekhov uh, because I would have liked to appear. I've appeared in quite a lot of Shakespeare, but I've never done any Chekhov. Um, and I thought I could learn you know, some good parts in Chekhov to come back from my Desert Island. If I was going to go for fiction, I never know quite how to answer. Um, I think... On some days, it would be um, The Adventures of Tom Jones uh, by Henry Fielding, only because when I was at Bedales, there was a wonderful teacher called Harold Gardner who introduced me to Fielding's works. Henry Fielding, the man who wrote Tom Jones and Joseph Andrews and lots of other wonderful books. And again, by chance, I'm speaking to you from London, England, and 100 yards from where I'm sitting is was the home of Henry Fielding. So again, my childhood seems to have sort of gone on my life. But if I wasn't Henry Fielding, I think I might choose Vanity Fair by William Makepeace Thackeray. Wonderful novel. I'm only saying that because usually I choose The Old Wives' Tale by Arnold Bennett. Uh, Arnold Bennett, neglected novelist now, but one of the great novelists. And he, incidentally, died in the block of flats where my parents lived, Chilton Court, above Baker Street Tube Station. And in the flat next door to the run where my parents lived was Huey Green. Do you remember him from Opportunity Knox? Oh, God, Indeed. yes. Yeah. Michael Miles and Huey yeah. Green. Correct. That's um, extraordinary you choose Vanity Fair, though, or even think about it, because um, when I was studying it, I loathed Becky Sharp, really? the anti-heroine, really, isn't she? And now so much modern fiction has got women very much in her mould. So yeah. perhaps I should reread it. You should. Well, it's not always a good thing to reread things. My wife reread, and this is going to sound like sacrilege, we're going to lose all the listeners now. My <laughs> wife reread Pride and Prejudice the other day and thought it was a bit ordinary. Oh, see, yeah. I love persuasion. Yeah. I'm going to go back to persuasion. Yeah. Maybe one shouldn't go back to these things. Maybe it's best to keep, you know, at different stages and ages in your life, you like different books. I've written a lot of um, Victorian murder mysteries. I say a lot. I've written nine Victorian murder mysteries, mostly based on the real-life friendship between Oscar Wilde and Arthur Conan Doyle. And I have them as my detectives. Um, they, they are my equivalent of Sherlock Holmes and um, Dr. Watson, you know, Wilde being Holmes and uh, Conan Doyle being Watson. And that came about because I, I was reading Conan Doyle's autobiography and discovered he had met Wilde and indeed they'd become friends. He was friends with Bram Stoker as well. Dracula fame. He certainly was. Bram Stoker, most remarkable figure. In fact, in the last of those novels, uh, Oscar Wilde, it's uh, the, called, I think it's called The Murders at Reading Jail. Anyway, no, no, the last one is called Jack the Ripper Case Closed. And it's where Oscar Wilde and 
um, Conan Doyle solved, genuinely solved the Jack the Ripper murders. And Bram Stoker is indeed one of the characters in it. Bram Stoker, like Oscar Wilde, came from Dublin, was a great friend of Oscar Wilde, and in his day was best known as the theatre manager for the great Sir Henry Irving, the first actor to be knighted. And he only subsequently really became famous for writing Dracula. There's a a good book about it, Tim, isn't there? Um, I read it recently about the whole um, Henry Irving and Bram Stoker and adultery with Mrs Irving. No, the great E. Ellen Terry. Yes, I don't... Well, yes... There is a a sort of biography, a joint biography of uh, the Terrys and Henry Irving, uh, and it's marvellous, written by Michael Holroyd. Oh, that's it. Well done, Giles. Yeah. Giles, it's been so lovely. I wish it could have been longer and more of a chat, but I'm so grateful that you've agreed to do this at all for us. It's been fabulous. And Tim says all three of your books are selling well already anyway. Well, where is your bookshop? Or oh, four. In Lavent Street, going, just going down from the station. And what is you the know? bookshop called? One Tree Books. One Tree Books. Well, when I next come, which I must do because I'm going to, I promise to come back to visit the Petersfield Museum, which I had the honour of assisting at the reopening. And I love it. I really think it's a wonderful museum. I must come and visit your bookshop. Petersfield's Shine Radio. So that was hugely entertaining, uh, Giles. Thank you very much. Um, and thanks for your for your Desert Island books response. Pretty fulsome, I reckon. <laughs> uh, so next, I'm going to talk about some of the local books uh, that have been published uh, in the last, I suppose, the last month or so. Um, I think everybody has perhaps been settling down during lockdown and written their written their masterpiece. Uh, the first one is a book called The Voice, the Face by Martin Munkester. Um, some of you will know him. Many of you will know him. He's sort of the voice of the old home service, and he, in fact, he was the first presenter of south today um and he's reflected back over his career in broadcasting full of full of anecdote and perhaps quite like giles is actually I'm not sure. <laughs> maybe slightly different um rebecca stevens another local writer has written a book called making it happen which is basically how to execute strategy how to actually make things uh whether you're a government minister or or a um general or whatever how to actually make things happen which is an interesting concept uh it's a kind of business book but she's a she's a mountaineer she climbed she was the first woman to climb everest and she's a quite a motivational speaker and we should uh, ask her to be maybe we should ask her to come on so that that is a is a book that's worth looking at Via nickel has written a novel called the silence of snow and it's a it's a kind of romantic thriller um She's done. She's done several. She's published them herself, uh, and she's a great, great publicist and marketeer for her books. So that's that's just come out. Um, Gordon Rushmer, the local artist, has a wonderful collection of pictures of the South Downs National Park, which is celebrating ten years of the park. He's a beautiful artist who does some amazing, amazing pictures. That has been out for a while, but it's just bought a, bought a new edition out, and it's really, really a nice book. And the last book I was going to mention is uh, Gina Cheney's book, The Mystery of the Lost Husbands, which uh, is a, in the vein of the number one ladies' detective agency, or Arsenic and Old Lace. It's kind of uh, gentle crime, if you like, with, with a private investigator uh, trying to find out what's happened to all these lost husbands. Okay. So um, that's a few, a few books to be getting on with. 
Lovely. I love the Icelandic way of reading at Christmas Eve. They don't sort of do massive, ridiculous presents like we do. They buy each other books. And then on Christmas Eve, that's when they exchange gifts, they sit and read them with a glass of wine, some chocolates, and uh, basically don't show their faces till that new year. I kind of quite like that concept, actually. I like the, mm. the, the nice, nice mulled wine, oh, roaring yeah. fire... All those nice chocolates and a, and a selection of books, yeah. What could be better? Absolutely perfect. Now we come to our backlisted book. And I'm going to read The Apple Tree by Daphne du Maurier. I'm not going to read the whole of it because it's, it's, um, it's almost a novella. This edition um, is actually published in Canada. And so it's illustration and very sweet. I like a book that you can just hold in your hand. So that's sort of, I mean, that sounds ridiculous. It's just like literally a pocket book. It's OK, you've tied yourself in enough knots there, I've Susie. I've tied myself in knots, um, particularly for radio. You haven't got any, any uh, Welsh boys for me to read out this, this time, have you? <laughs> I just hope you enjoyed that at home. I loved Goodness. it. Right, but it is traditional. So we've talked about Icelandic traditions. It was very much a British tradition. I don't know whether Dickens started it. I mean, Christmas was really begun by the Victorians, wasn't it, as a concept? Don't don't write in and tell me it was Jesus. I don't mean that. I mean all the, the bits about um, Tinder and holly and ivy and everything. Christmas trees. C- Christmas trees were later. That was Albert, but that was yeah, Victorian. He, he was right. Victorian. Um, he was married to her. He's married to her, <laughs> so he should be. Um, and um, I, my producer's laughing. If you hear laughter in the background, it's um, it's John Wellsman. Um, but this is um, masterful. It's even one that I think you'd probably enjoy, Tim, because it's actually... Uh, about a marriage it's about a husband and wife and how your sympathy goes one way and then the other and it's really good writing because come on it's Daphne du Maurier so it's as much a ghost story as don't look now as in it really sets a scene it's not as brilliant as that but anyway here we go it was three months after she died that he first noticed the apple tree he had known of its existence of course with the others standing upon the lawn in front of the house, sloping upwards to the field beyond. Never before, though, had he been aware of this particular tree looking in any way different from its fellows, except that it was the third one on the left, a little apart from the rest, and leaning more closely to the terrace. It was a fine, clear morning in early spring, and he was shaving by the open window. As he leant out to sniff the air, the lather on his face, the razor in his hand, his eye fell upon the apple tree. It was a trick of the light, perhaps, something to do with the sun coming up over the woods that happened to catch the tree at this particular moment. But the likeness was unmistakable. He put his razor down on the window ledge and stared. The tree was scraggy and of a depressing thinness, possessing none of the gnarled solidity of its companions its few branches growing high up on the trunk like narrow shoulders on a tall body, spread themselves in martyred resignation, as though chilled by the fresh morning air. The roll of wire circling the tree and reaching to about halfway up the trunk from the base looked like a grey tweed skirt covering lean limbs, while the topmost branch sticking up into the air above the ones below, yet sagging slightly, could have been a drooping head poked forward, in an attitude of weariness. How often had he seen Midge stand like this, dejected, 
No matter where it was, whether in the garden or in the house or even shopping in the town, she would take upon herself this same stooping posture, suggesting that life treated her harshly, that she had been singled out from her fellows to carry some impossible burden, but in spite of it would endure to the end without complaint. Made you look worn out, for heaven's sake, sit down and take a rest. But the words would be received with the inevitable shrug of the shoulder, the inevitable sigh. Someone has got to keep things going. And straightening herself, she would embark upon the dreary routine of unnecessary tasks she forced herself to do, day in, day out, through the interminable, changeless years. He went on staring at the apple tree, that martyred, bent position, the stooping top, the weary branches, the few withered leaves that had not blown away with the wind and rain of the past winter and now shivered in the spring breeze like wispy hair. All of it protested soundlessly to the owner of the garden looking upon it, I am like this because of you, because of your neglect. He turned away from the window and went on shaving. It would not do to let his imagination run away with him and start building fancies in his mind just when he was settling at long last to freedom. So there we are. I think that's a masterful um, we get the picture very soon on. And I'm happy to say why I think you'd like it, Tim is it's not what you think. The, the apple tree does not start striding about the garden, wreaking revenge. Um, your sympathies go first with perhaps downtrodden Midge, although she is very irritating, and then with the husband, and then you think, oh, no, actually, he's a bully, and so on. It's all very nicely drawn. Excellent. I commend it to you. Thank you. So, Tim, have you got any New Year resolutions? Just the usual ones, which is to spend more time reading and less time watching telly and, and doing other things like reading newspapers and things. But, uh, yeah, that's the, that's the main one. Yeah, mind screen time in all forms, really, I think. Yeah, I agree with you. Who have we got to look forward to? I'm still trying to fix this up, but the fantastic crime writer. So we've talked a little bit about cosy crime. If any of you love Ellie Griffiths, be very excited because she has agreed to be our guest. I don't know yet whether it's January or February, but um, Leslie Thompson was teaching on the MA course when I did my MA at West Dean. So I'm going to go on my old stomping ground back over there um, because they run a course there now on crime fiction. So I'm going to go and interview them. And hopefully that's what we'll look forward to in January. If not, I think we should try for some of those authors that you've mentioned today, Tim. Just to let you know that if you miss any episodes in the in the last few months, you can find us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Just put in Talking Books and Peterfield Shine Radio. Excellent. And have a lovely Christmas and New Year. Have a great one. You've been listening to Talking Books with Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Produced by John Wellsman. Christmas carols are coming to your doorstep. Next Wednesday night, it's Doorstep Carols on Petersfield Shine Radio. 
sing along with the radio to all your Christmas favourites. Grab a copy of this week's Petersfield Post for all the sing-along words and then turn up Shine Radio next Wednesday night at 6. All you need is your best singing voice, the words from the Petersfield Post, Shine Radio turned up loud, oh, and a doorstep, that would help. Doorstep carols. Sing along with the radio next Wednesday night at 6 on Petersfield Shine Radio. See you on the doorstep.